Hello everyone, welcome back and if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into this week's show, I'd like to talk about what it means to be a high performance human. It isn't always about how fast you go on race day, but it's got more to do with how closely you're able to align your lifestyle with your values. And this involves sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, work habits, and so much more. If these are areas that you'd like to improve on, then we'd love to help you. I currently have available to take on a couple of clients and my wife, Beth, who's a certified life coach, also has availability. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered and you can find contact details in the show notes. All right, on to this week's show. Our regular listeners will know that I'm a big fan of mobility and strength point work to the point where I have regularly recommended to athletes that they reduce their swim, bike and run volume and use that extra time to work out in the gym. Several years ago, I came across a book written by today's guest, Brian McKenzie. The book was called The Unbreakable Runner and the principle was to replace a lot of running volume with CrossFit style workouts. And Brian had used this approach to complete his first 50 mile ultra on a much lower volume of running than you might expect and with a great deal of success and he's used this then successfully with all of the athletes he coaches who have also achieved success. Brian's also a big believer in the importance of technique for endurance athletes, a principle which echoes that of many previous podcast guests and in this conversation we'll also talk about that, about breathing practice, the dangers of becoming too reliant on gadgets in training and aligning your lifestyle with your values. So there's a lot of gold in the conversation. So please have your notebooks and pencils ready and let's hear from Brian. Welcome to the show, Mr. Brian McKenzie. Thank you, Mr. Simon Ward. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've uh, I've been a big fan of your books, Brian. As I, I said, you know, um, I, I love The Unbreakable Runner, which we'll talk about in a bit and the principles that you have around that. Um, I'm working my way through... Uh, is it power speed endurance at the moment? And I, I'm going to get on to un- unplug next. So hopefully we can touch on all of those. But um, before we do, I'd j- just like to get a sense of, of you know, your your background, where you're from, how you got to this point that you're at in your career at the moment. Maybe give some context to the listeners. So I was a short course sprinter in swimming, played water polo growing up, um, mm-hmm. played a little bit of football, what you call football, we call soccer um proper name football that said um i got roped into a triathlon um after doing some spinning class in in this dungeness type gym that it, that was like before before anybody knew what spinning was mm-hmm. this is where sp- the 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 spinning world emerged out of what this was um but it was this underground gym with these absolutely disgusting rusty bikes um in like just this sweat uh stank uh room where we would just go hard anyway a buddy of mine who i who i kind of was doing classes with this wrote me into a um triathlon mm-hmm. uh in oh close to 2000 2001 ish to maybe 2000 somewhere between 2001 and 2003 and um i uh signed up for a sprint triathlon this buddy of mine had done multiple ironmans etc uh and he was like you'd do great anyway so i i got involved in it 
I, I went and did it and got very humbled very quickly. My swimming background had me coming out of the water and, you know, like top 10 places. Uh, however, I lost many places on the bike and even more on the run and was passed by several overweight people uh, that encouraged me to keep going, um, which I noticed the camaraderie, but I also noticed I did not have the faintest understanding of what fitness might've meant at that point. Hmm. Um, so, uh, I, I, I dove in kind of the triathlon world, although I didn't hang out there very long. I wasn't a big fan long-term of kind of the crowd and the mentality. Um, uh, that said, um, prior to this, I had been, I had kind of been on like the, uh, I call it the nine year plan in college where I just had no goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was bouncing around a bunch of different, you know, classes. And I took an exercise science class and got the first A that I ever um, wanted. You know, the, the, the first A I had ever achieved in any sort of schooling. Um, and, you know, I, I made sure I was a C student, uh, meaning I went to just enough school so I could play sport. Mm -hmm. That was it. Uh, I could care less about school. I was bored out of my mind. And uh, the exercise science side of things and the physical side of things really intrigued me. Um, fresh out of high school, coming out of high school, my my old man was a uh, got into powerlifting. So I had a garage gym. So even prior to that, I got an introduction to strength training in its rawest form. Um, mm -hmm. We're talking back when nobody, you know, like I have, I, I don't have it anymore, but we used to have Louis Simmons VHS cassettes mm -hmm. on the bench, the squat and the deadlift. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I had a lot of introduction to some base and strength training, but then also had this introduction, you know, just had this life that I had been living with inside the water. But I also grew up as a punk rock kid in Southern California, where I was skateboarding and surfing. Um, so I, you know, I, I had a very eclectic, but, you know, diverse background mm -hmm. that seemed to mesh when I ran into um, some walls out of triathlon. Um, and those walls were, you know, I did Ironman Canada, as we discussed, and in 2004. Um, I finished it in like 11 hours and some change. Um, and I was pretty disappointed because I felt like utter sh just crap. Uh, you know, and uh, the week, a, a week or two later, I was on a century ride because that's what she did back then. Like, mm -hmm. you just kept doing distance. <laughs> Um, you know, and, uh, I was on a century ride and absolutely smashed my time. Like I was under five hours on the century ride, right? Like it was crazy. Um, and I was like, how did I just peak now? But, um, so I was a little confused with everything. And at any rate, I, uh, took up mentorship with a guy by the name of Dr. Nicholas Romanoff, who's mm -hmm. creator of the pose method, uh, who I, had already employed, you know, had been employing his, um, uh, skill set and knowledge, uh, in, I think probably like 2002, right, right. When I started triathlon, cause I got shin splints and stuff, ended up going to one of his sem seminars and they were gone in a weekend, uh, from working with him. Yeah. Can I, can I just go back to that? Uh, um, yeah. First race in Canada. Uh, yeah. You, you said you felt like shit. 
right? What yeah. was that? Was that um, nausea from from the just all the gels and nutrition that you probably thought you had to take in, or was it just that your body was giving up on you? There was nothing wrong with the engine, but you, you know you were shuffling along, your shoulders were dropping, your hips were hurting, your back was aching, and you you knew you could run faster, but you couldn't actually make it happen. Uh, it was probably it was mo- more than likely a nutritional and training issue, mm. meaning. I had been doing such long, I had been doing so much volume and my nutrition wasn't actually that dialed in, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning I I was trying to mimic that of what like a lot of elite athletes do. Um, And yet I wasn't anywhere near an elite time, right? Like I wasn't pushing myself metabolically at that point to that Mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I definitely think there were some electrolyte and nutritional problems that were occurring, but it, you know, nonetheless, um, I made it through, I was just walking a lot more on the run than I had yeah. anticipated, you know, and it was the end of the bike where all that started to happen. And then it was literally coming off of the bike into the run. And I remember it like it was yesterday, <laughs> like I was like, Holy shit, I feel great right now. And I literally ran, you know, like a sub eight minute mile, just cruising. Yeah. And then it was literally within you know, after that first mile where I was just like <laughs> off of a cliff. And, you know, I've done Ironman Canada um, five times and I can envisage that point where you're feeling that you're going out of town and it's an out and back run that one, isn't it? So you, you're going, yes. a, you're going yes. away from the transition. There's no going round and having loops and seeing Down your the friends. lake, man. Down the lake. Yeah. And then when you come back, just after you turn, you've got that bit of a hill. And, um, you know, that's like you're either walking or you aren't going home. From there. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I felt exactly the same. I, I went to listen to a pro triathlete two days before talking about nutrition and this is how much I take in and thinking, oh, that sounds good and tried to mimic that. And then I just, as soon as I started running, maybe within a mile, I was throwing up. My stomach was sort of just sounded like a milk churn being tossed around. And uh, yeah, I did that whole walk, run, puke thing <laughs> all the way back down yeah. into town. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. Good. I didn't, I, I wasn't doing any puking, but I, I definitely was, sh- you know, just not able to mm. get the gas that I thought mm. I would have mm. um, at any rate, you know, so I, I, I had actually uh, been working with Romanoff for some time, but then decided like, Hey, I'm ready to really listen to you. Uh, and, and, you know, he was open to it. Um, and that was essentially where, I had on the way home from uh, Penticton, on the way home from Canada, I read an article in a magazine where um, I, there were these guys running, I think it was like, uh, I think it was outside magazine or something. And there were these men running uh, ultra marathons. They're doing 50 and hundred mile runs in the mountains. And they, uh, I was like, there's no way, there's no way anybody does this. This is bullshit. Like who, who goes and runs 50 miles? I just did an iron man. And I thought I was going to die. Who's, who's going to do that in the mountains? Like I I've, I've done trail runs before, but there's no way 50 miles, like five miles is like a 10 mile run. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I got instantly intrigued and dove into the rabbit hole with that. And then it employed Romanoff in that capacity uh, at the early stages of uh, my iron man days. So I started that process and he introduced me to what would quickly become uh, a reintroduction to endurance. 
Um, and that was where he had me doing very little low intensity work. Uh, because he just, as he described it, I had already done that work. And if I was to train for something to run at a specific pace, I was going to need to work. I was going to need to develop the tissue in order to handle that, um, that nothing was really occurring outside of 40 minutes of hard work, you know, or, you know, in, in this high level VO2 push, like nothing was really occurring out there or beyond really 40 minutes. Um, that I needed to be too worried about since I had the aerobic function that I already did. Um, and so I got really reintroduced to things. And within three weeks, I was PRing uh, every run record I had. Um, and, you know, I was like, wow. Uh, and in this, he had uh, made sure that I was back on a strength and conditioning program that uh, had me quite sore. <laughs> and I was questioning every bit of the way for the first few weeks until I started, till I actually PR'd a 10 mile run because mm. I was questioning what was going on. And he said, okay, I want you to go run 10 miles and I want you to hold this pace. And I was like, he's nuts. And, and I went out and no problem held that pace, came back and I was blown away. I mean, that would seem fairly logical to me that if you've got a great big base of endurance and then you top it off with a few weeks of, of harder, shorter mm -hmm. duration stuff, that that would, add the, that would add the icing onto the cake and, and you'd be able to peak. But this is what I'd like to get into in our discussion is, is that sustainable yeah. year round, that type of training for, for most people involved in endurance events, which is, which I guess um, the, the principle of your book, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in essence, I, so... I'll get there. Um, you know, I, I, I continued on with this for quite some time and, and did perfectly fine, um, with, with the training. However, it was, it was monitored heavily, um, on intensities and what I was doing and what I started to piece together was a lot of the stuff Louis Simmons had, had encountered with powerlifting. So Louis, basically what Louis did with west side barbell for for the endurance community they really have no knowledge of this mm -hmm. um but louis brought back why russia is 30 years ahead of the united states and just about anything driven by exercise science <laughs> um and they still are in in a lot of in a lot of ways maybe not necessarily in the endurance world uh but when you talk about strength and conditioning uh, they are very far ahead and they've been thinking about things for quite some time. Yeah. You just um, earlier on, you mentioned how you can go back to those days when you're at college, when you had those Louis Simmons VHS videos. Uh, I, I used to share a house with a friend of mine who was a strength and conditioning coach for England Rugby Union and for Great Britain Rugby League. And mm -hmm. he and I used to sit and watch exactly those russian lifting videos and eastern european lifting videos about the snatch and the just the different training methods and he said to me you know people think that the russians are better athletes because they're all on drugs he said but the americans are on drugs and the australians are on drugs it's all to do with the conditioning and the the, the fact that they've got a structured program for the athletes and they're not left to their own devices and it's because this conditioning from um um i'm trying to think of the guys now but but the Verkashansky and all of those Russian yeah, professors uh -huh. that wrote all of those books 
Um, yep. He said, all of that stuff is the basis for this level of performance. And we, we'd spend evenings watching these and then sort of talking about how we could introduce them to the rugby players. And you're right, it's, the, the East was light years ahead. And, and now look at where all the Bulgarian lifting coaches are in Australia now and New Zealand. So, you know, they're still there mm-hmm. bringing uh, champions out just in a different sphere. So, yeah, yeah. I yeah. fully concur I mean, on that. So I don't necessarily disagree with the fact that one might, with with the amount of intensity that I've, you know, fallen in love with, uh, is going to need some buffer. Um, however, the way I came about understanding that buffer is very differently. I've, I, I did lots of volume. I've done lots of volume. In fact, most people would look at what I do today, right now, uh, at, at 50, almost 50 years old as, wow, that's a lot. I mean, I do in excess of three hours a day of mm-hmm. some sort of training that said mm-hmm. the base layer of what that is is walking level uh, output. Uh So in that, if an individual can actually do that, that creates a buffer that allows you to then step into kind of that world that we're talking about right now. But where if I have somebody doing like when you look at Unbreakable Runner, you're going to see short intervals, longer intervals, and a tempo run. Within those... What what's changed with this stuff is what what I've introduced with the gear system, with the, which is the breathing gear system, and in that the approach becomes when I first inter- get get an athlete, I have we start to develop them through the breathing gears and this sort of a system where they're doing shorter intervals to where they're working up to where a gear breaks. So if I go from easy nasal breathing to power nasal breathing, which is gear one, gear two, mm-hmm. anything beyond gear two becomes I'm outside of nasal breathing. So then the mouth gets involved. That's where we will begin to cut it with the individual. What happens is the same thing that's happened with, that, that you can look at under metabolic stress almost. So if I had a metabolic cart on somebody who's coming off the couch or a decent athlete or an elite athlete, you're going to have two, you're going to have three varying abilities in those different interval and tempo complexes, right? Mm -hmm. The more novice individual is going to redline very quickly, Mm -hmm. right? We all understand that. So if I'm introducing intervals that are under a minute where they are to work up to almost mouth breathing. That is a very different workout than for somebody who has actually developed that, mm-hmm. right? Now, the real interesting thing here is that what I started to notice about a decade ago with this breathing thing is how many elite athletes are actually pretty CO2 intolerant or they're hypersensitive to CO2, which means they are by and large over breathing at moderate and low intensities, which means that if I were to restrict their breathing in any way, shape or form at those lower intensities, it would feel almost like a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that in their plays, this differentiation in how we're actually making these adjustments with people. 
Okay, so can I can I just yeah. sort of dig into that whole thing about the breathing gears and uh, different zones? A lot of the athletes I work with and and probably that are listening uh, are invested in training zones, you know. And I've mm-hmm. we've been talking about getting rid of seven or eight zones, like some people. I'm just having three: one that falls below the first turn point when you're measuring lactate, um, commonly known as the aer- aerobic threshold, and the other one that. Um, is above the anaerobic threshold. And then the middle one, yeah. which is that sort of almost like a no man's land sort of threshold sweet spot. And then encouraging people to follow more of a periodized model um, where you're doing a lot of that sort of lower, be- below 80% intensity, and then some of that high intensity. And, and then maybe a smattering of the stuff in the middle zone when you're peaking for a race. Um, mm-hmm. I was listening to Peter Atia and Inigo Sam Milan talking about zone two and they were talking about breathing and can you use breathing as a as a surrogate for um intensity rather than power or heart rate? And he said, absolutely. It's it's a very solid way of doing this if you're in tune with your body. And he said, Well, how will how will somebody know? And he said, Well, if if you and I were chatting on this podcast, but we didn't have video, if I was in zone one, so almost like that walking type thing, you probably wouldn't know I was exercising. If I was in zone two, uh, which could be nose breathing, I'd be, you'd be able to tell I was exercising, but we'd still be able to have a reasonable conversation. Once we go above that first turn point, then that's when you're starting to not be able to nose breathe easily and people are starting to slip into mouth breathing. So would mm-hmm. would, would that match up with the way you have your gearing system? Sort of. So I we've got five gears and there's a very good reason for that. The middle third gear, um, is really a transitional gear. It's meaningless in, in, in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. However, we use it as a touch point or a down gear. Um, gear one is the most important gear. Developing it um, is helping develop the, re- really develop the primary breathing muscles, which are the intercostals and the diaphragm. It's not just the diaphragm. This is one of the biggest problems that exists with inside um, just the exercise world. Uh, even in the therapy world is they talk about the diaphragm, like it's this, you know, the, the, this sole thing it is not, it doesn't function by itself. Nothing in the human body does that. Um, although blood stealing is a phenomenon where blood will be diverted from the mo- locomotor muscles into the diaphragm and intercostals. All right. Um, so the breathing gears, gear one is an equal in and out through the nose. It is very easy. It is what like you should be able to maintain one breath cycle every four seconds to six seconds, roughly um, at gear one, right? Below four seconds. So meaning if I start to dip into the three second range um, where it's like one and a half in, one and a half out, let's just call it one and a half in, one and a half out. That's moving more towards gear two. So it's becoming a little bit more powerful, right? That gear two is just beyond what I've been able to pinpoint with uh, heart rate zone two. So when you start to move beyond heart rate zone two uh, in a five heart rate zone, uh, you will see that gear two start to come on if one has done the actual training. Um, this is where it gets interesting because a lot of people don't think that you, we should be intervening with breathing when we're exercising. I've found that to be laughable in, in most things because we manipulate everything for our modern lifestyles. 
And to say we shouldn't be uh, we we shouldn't be manipulating breathing is is just asinine and laughable uh, in 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 the context that yoga has been doing this for more than five thousand years. Mm-hmm. So uh, why would exercise decide not to do that? Um, <laughs> since since what I've been able to see with the thousands of athletes I've run into, even at the elite level is dysfunctional breathing patterns. And in fact, research even shows us that the Olympic level, the number one reported medical issue are breathing related issues. Mm -hmm. So if we've got that, why wouldn't we go and deploy a strategy for that? And this is that strategy where developing a very large gear one up into heart rate zone two is pretty much that world. Uh, Talking when, when I, you know, the conversational pace is um is going to be something of the past here very shortly because people are going to catch on that if you're actually mouth breathing when you're at moderate to low intensities you're actually over breathing which means you're actually constricting the vasculature which means you're not delivering enough oxygen or blood to the periphery and to the locomotor muscles which means you're not utilizing the oxygen in and of itself so, and look, the endurance world sort of catching on, not sort of, they have been with a lot of the near infrared spectroscopy that they've been uh, deployed, they've deployed as the technologies and they're able to see this stuff where we've got a pulmonary related issue. Um, so this was in essence why we put this in there. Now, on the other end of this, we've, I've been at this for, I've been at this the longest in terms of performance that I understand with understanding the breathing as it relates to integration within performance. Um, And in that, what I've seen in the last decade is this transition with this crowd of nasal breathing Mm -hmm. and the people who think that nasal breathing is the only thing there is. Um, And that could not be farther from the truth that uh, there is a point that happens right up around heart rate zone four, where if you do not shift over to oral breathing, you're doing essentially the the exact same thing, but on the opposite end of over breathing. And so you're retarding your ability to work with the pH changes, the acidity and how we're, what we need to offload in terms of performance. And so you'll see people who are in this nasal breathing crowd who uh, fall off of a cliff when we do a stress test or a VO2 max test, the moment they move into oral breathing and they can't sustain anything over like 35 breaths a minute. I've um, I've done a couple of podcasts where we touched on nasal breathing. I I did a a podcast with a guy called George Dallum, who's a professor um, at a university in Central mm-hmm. America, uh, Central US, I think. But he he was an advocate of nasal breathing right up to, you know, quite high intensity, which I, having tried it, I've struggled to uh, comprehend. But Phil Maffetone also talked about nasal breathing as a, a good way of monitoring his, what he calls his math levels, which are this sort of your, your gears one and one and a half, I would say. So I've been, I've mm-hmm. been quite interested in breathing and, and I, Take your point about elite athletes there. Um, the physios that I work with have worked with some elite athletes purely on the breathing. And these are the people who were racing at the highest level um, in Olympic distance triathlon and help them improve their performance by focusing just on the breathing and the breathing patterns. And you can see when they're running how much more relaxed they look and composed when, you know, and just relaxed in the thorax when they've got that breathing um, skill. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's huge. And largely it's an underdevelopment of the primary breathing muscles. And so Mm -hmm. when there is an underdevelopment of the primary breathing muscles, it's the secondary that switch on sooner. And so if the secondary are coming on sooner, we already know blood stealing is occurring. Come on. End of story. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I'm going to come back to uh, to talking about breathing in 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 relation yeah. to your current projects with H HHP and, and uh, Shift. But I'd like to go back to the Unbreakable Runner there first because I, I, yeah, yeah, you know, um, one of the things that's in your book is a lot more high intensity running and a lot of CrossFit wad type workout of the day for people who aren't familiar with those, um, which all all of that seems highly anaerobic and makes me think, well. Then for your typical triathlete, their volumes would be very low because that they'd need a lot more recovery from that. There'd be a lot more oxidative stress for the muscles. Um, it 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 feels like for those endurance athletes, it would take quite a long time to introduce their body to that, so they could do that style of training safely. Is that right, or do you feel like people can transition very quickly? Uh, it's not a very fast one, but it is, there is some, there, there is a way to do it. Um, and that's in part, the problem is that most people want a cookie cutter version of how we all can fit into a box, which is part of the problem that the endurance world has is that, it, you know, everybody thinks that going and doing all this zone two heart rate stuff is going to change their life. And while it has changed many lives, saying heart rate zone two is a meaningless thing mm-hmm. in terms of what we're talking about when we're talking about metabolic output or anaerobic aerobic, there is no real anaerobic. It all works for oxygen. We already, you know, bioenergetics has changed and we now understand far more and that it's all working for oxygen for ATP, right? And it's just a downward shift, meaning how well have I developed inside of there? And do I have the ability to create a robust model around this oxygen uh, efficiency or this phosphorylation, right? Oxidative phosphorylation. Um, And if I can create that, what am I doing on the other stages of that? And how well am I responding to that? The problem that also exists within introducing CrossFit with people (laughs) or strength and conditioning with people is that it's the same thing that happens in the endurance world. Oh, if I just keep going longer, just doing long, slow distance, I'm going to do great. Uh, Enter. I do Metcons every day. If you understand that terminology, I don't know why that thumb pops up, but it does. Um, (laughs) The, um, if I, you know, if I'm doing a Metcon, which is basically a bunch of different exercises for time, right? Or under a certain strategy. And so I'm lifting, running, doing some gymnastics type thing, and I'm doing reps in all of these. And I just keep repeating this for a time frame or doing it on a specific time frame. And I'm doing that every day. Well, that's not CrossFit. That's just, just metabolic. That's just high intensity training. And, and the model of CrossFit, people really don't understand or nor do they want to take the time to understand or invest themselves into understanding it. Mm. CrossFit is constantly very high uh, functional movement at high intensity. That could be deadlifting seven sets of singles one day, then on another day doing a sub five minute workout like a Metcon 
And then on another day, doing some gymnastics style movements, right? So I've introduced three entirely different demands on the body in terms of stressor, tissue development, and metabolic output. And so thinking of it all as in terms of high intensity is also fits into this scheme of like, you know, talking about yoga. Well, we should go do more yoga. Well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about this westernized version of yoga or are we talking about the mm-hmm. real yoga where it was like a martial art and it nothing like that is taught anymore because nobody in today's modern world is uh, willing to get outside of their comfort zone to actually deal with that sort of intensity. So that daily change in exposure to those different forms is sounds pretty much like a russian general preparation period of training an athlete doesn't it before you get into the specific stuff you know gymnastics heavy lifting some circuit style training uh, so the athlete has a wide variety of skills and that's something else we can come back on is this development of skill and technique um of, onto which they can then build the yeah. sport specific performance yes well and that and you you're, you're not dumb. You know, you're, you're, you've caught on to. So now if I've got these different layers of strength and conditioning, and then I've got, Oh, short intervals. Well, what does that require out of me? That's going to require a certain sort of energy source, right? A certain, mm-hmm. It's going to be very quick and it's going to empty the oxygen tank pretty quickly. Then I've got a little bit of a longer one. That's going to empty that oxygen tank a little bit. It's going to take a little longer to do that. Then I'm going to do one where I'm not going to empty that oxygen tank, but I'm going to work right at that limit in a tempo sort of fashion. So I'm kind of working with all of this, but at the base layer of all of this sits skill development. And that's what, so you, you came into my work with Unbreakable Runner. That was the second book I wrote. Power Speed Endurance was the first one I did. And that, the, the subtitle of that book is a skill-based approach to endurance training. Because that in and of itself was and is the fundamental problem with inside the endurance world. Nobody wants to do the skill development. They just want to go out and run. They just Mm -hmm. want to go out and ride. Oh, and if they do do skill development, it's probably less than 10 minutes. The stuff we were doing Mm -hmm. was probably 30 to 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Then the workout began. I um, had a podcast call with a swim coach recently and he, he said something very similar to me. He said, There's no, <laughs> there is no skill in the world that you can do fast if you can't first do it well slowly. He said, it doesn't matter whether you're painting, whether you're playing the piano, whether you're chopping you know, vegetables in a chef's kitchen or whether you're swimming or weightlifting. You've got to be able to do it well mm-hmm. slowly and broken down before you can piece it back together and then do it with speed. And you know, you made a comment in your book, the, the cross, the um, power speed endurance, which I'm reading right now, which I highlighted, and I wasn't the first one, by the way. Lots of people have been taken by that bit. The moment skills compromised by intensity of effort, that's the point when you need to dial it back. And and I'm, you know, as a triathlon coach, I'm coaching people in the pool, and they, to your point, want to do drills for ten minutes as a bit of entertainment and a bit of a warm up before they get into the stuff that they feel is going to be useful, which is the hard work where they're you know, they're breathing really hard and they you know, um, feel like they're developing their fitness. So they don't actually pay attention to when they're doing the drills. They don't try and be world-class at doing drills. They just get them done because yeah. it's in the way of this other stuff. 
And then what we see is they're starting to go fast. And you, you've made references to this, somebody running 400 metres maximally. I see it in the swimming pool is at a certain point, their, their technique starts to fail them. And they look like they're trying to punch their way out of a paper bag unsuccessfully. And, and yet they're beating themselves up because over time they're not getting any faster but they refuse to go back and develop that skill, which is the secret to them getting faster. It's as frustrating for me <laughs> as I think it is for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is why, I mean, look, man, we're, we're all, Simon, we're all human. And this is the, the crux of it is we're, we're as human beings, we are quite an entertaining lot, myself <laughs> included in that, we get, we gravitate towards what we think or perceive mm. is what's making us better. When, what is it we're making, what is it we're improving? There's nothing to actually really improve here, right? Alan, Alan Watts, famous philosopher, hammered this, right? He, he really made, made fun of this. He's like, who's supposed to do the improving? Yeah. The one who needs improving? That doesn't make sense, right? So when we start to look at this, like if I wanted to develop a way to run better, I'm going to go about this in what capacity? And for most people in the, in the way I got successful very quickly in my career was I was helping broken runners, people mm. who were hurt, people who wanted to run but could no longer run or they were just dysfunctional with what they were doing and they knew it and they came to me and I would help clean them up and we'd introduce strength training in order to develop the tissue to be able to move in a way that allowed them to mechanically function in a way that was much more efficient for running and I mean, I, I witness this all the time. I mean, I see kids now that uh, what 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 used to be quite beautiful, but now because they we we sit so much, we're on computers and and phones so much, we see these kids that um, have dysfunctional gait patterns that are like quite their heels striking barefoot, um, which is wild to me. Um, when they should just naturally be landing on the ball of the foot if, if they don't have on shoes, um, you know, and, uh, which by and large, most kids do do that. Uh, but we, we see kids running like dump trucks and it's largely a case of they've been sitting and on technologies most of the time. And that inevitably carries over into motor, motor patterns. I like what you say about fixing broken runners and helping them to get into a, you know, back to a point where they can run efficiently. And I guess the the pose method of running that you talked about with Nick Romanoff plays into that a little bit. I've interviewed several top level running coaches on this podcast. Yeah. And none of them actually says that they're a running coach. They all call themselves movement coaches. And mm -hmm. uh, what they're really trying to do is help people to move better, to have better posture, to have the joints stacked in the right place to get that sort of forward lean that you talk about in, in your book, mm -hmm. you know, just let gravity do the work. You know, you don't have to put your foot down because gravity would do that. You just have to plant it and pick it up and use the right muscles and it will be um, more efficient on your energy and a lot easier on your body. And I, I don't know about you, Brian, I'm, I'm 
nearly, I think I'm probably 10 years older than you, but I find these days that it's a lot easier to work on technique and be kind to your body than it is to smash it with hard work all the time with poor technique. Yeah, correct. Um, and I mean, to be clear, it's like, look, you know, the skill development part, um, that's incorporated through strength and conditioning as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something a lot of people avoid um, and don't want to take the time to understand, um, which, you know, it's like, look, you, you know, I think it was Dan P- Path that um, uh-huh. well, I, I was I was at Altus. Uh, I've I presented there a number of times and I'm, I'm good. I'm pretty good friends with Stu and, and the team and even Dan. I've talked with plenty. Um, but Dan brought up one time about, you know, sprinters carrying about 12 X body weight, you know, the, I, I don't know anybody who squats 12 X body weight really. No. Um, other than the maybe one or two people in the powerlifting world ever. Right. Like, so the ability to support 12 X body weight is going to require some very serious thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, meaning thinking in terms of I'm going to develop the skill to actually get here and it's going to take time, lots of time to get to that point in order to do that correctly. Now your, your recreational marathon runner Mm -hmm. is not going to be carrying that sort of a load, but what they are going to be doing is they are going to be carrying whatever load they've got at least one and a half to two X that on a single foot Many, 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 many times. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have the tissue and structure in order to support that, they're going to suffer the consequences of that. And that is what I saw um, a lot of. Um, I mean, I, I had the unique opportunity in working with CrossFit very early on. And I uh, put, I had a seminar that I taught with them for close to a decade Mm-hmm. Um, where I saw more than 10,000 athletes in less than a decade. And I were, had hands-on and watching all of this. And I would agree that it's all, like, I'm not a running coach. I'm not, I mean, I rarely work with runners anymore. I work with many, many, many different types of athletes. Um, and interestingly enough, I find that endurance is actually the lacking piece in most of these athletes' programs. <laughs> and they, but proper endurance most of them just want to go out and run you know like you get your mma athletes and you know they they just want to go out and run for uh-huh. an hour and a half right and it's like dude like <laughs> like we we need to have a discussion about what that looks like and what you what your systems actually look like and how uh-huh. well you're actually using energy and why you look like this in a fight versus that what you want uh-huh. uh you know it's very different so at any rate um it all comes back to developing that foundation of understanding skill development, motor control. And when like the, the human body is fantastic, it'll adapt to what we give it. So if I go out and, com- and continue to run poorly or have something going on in the body that is affecting how I'm moving over time, that pattern is stuck. And then I'm going to fall into an injury, right? Then I'm going to have to rewire some things. And do some things in order to restructure that in order to get into a place to where I'm optimizing or moving more efficiently to where I don't have to think about it again. I hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot. If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. 
please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week, ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. And I think what, what frightens a lot of endurance athletes is that if they're going to go to the gym and do a lot of strength work, number one, they probably just got in their head the commonly um, held belief about strength training and they think about Arnie and some of the bodybuilders and pumping iron and lifting heavy weights and building muscle. What we're talking about here is building a body that's resilient enough to absorb all of those stresses from the, from what they're going to do on a regular basis. And, you know, we, we see going back to the pool and I know you, you said you come from a pool background, people that yeah. have got a poor catch often that's not because they don't know what they're doing. There is a motor path. There is a motor pattern deficit there. But often it's because they don't have a, have any muscle or motor control around what's happening with the shoulder complex to maintain a good position there to enable them to have the strength to hold the catch and then apply some force against the water. And so when all of this is failing around the shoulder, the elbow drops and hence this hands are slicing through the water. So for those people, what we really want to do is just improve some stabilization and, and, and control around that shoulder complex just to just so that yeah. they can maintain that technique for longer, isn't it? They don't need to be frightened about yeah. gaining lots and lots of weight, but you still have to have some skill in the gym to be able to do the exercises properly in order to develop that. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I mean, I, I consulted with um, uh, San Jose State University um, with uh, Sage Hopkins for about a decade and they, this was the focus of what, you know, like a lot of this stuff you just brought up was there. Ironically, uh, what's very interesting is what you just talked about. I found a very quick way to teach people how to understand that. However, it would, it came from a source that people would never have imagined. Um, you know, and, and that is, uh, in, in, the context of probably the greatest big wave surfer that's lived on the planet, which is Laird okay. Hamilton. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Laird and I trained and I worked with Laird for quite some time. And, you know, you just, you hand somebody a dumbbell, heavy enough dumbbell and ask them to swim across the top of the pool. They will find support through that shoulder real quick before mm-hmm. the, if they don't want to go down to the bottom of the pool, mm-hmm. especially a deep, very deep pool. Um, and so, you know, that was, he, he's developed quite a program Mm. in in getting people who were world-class swimmers, including like, I was a very, I'm, I'm a very well-versed swimmer. Um, and you know, I was just, my head exploded in what he had created by introducing dumbbells and a new way to train mm-hmm. for people who, especially <laughs> big wave surfing to keep him healthy and to not keep, to keep the body still uh, not as banged up from a lot of the training that was going on. And yet very taxing on the body and very high intensity. Yet we found out you could do a lot of enough, enough of this to where the next day I was perfectly fine. I wasn't, I didn't require the amount of same amount of recovery. Is this all the stuff that he does in his deep pool in uh, in 
Yeah. So Cal, yeah, yeah, I've read about yeah. that. I've not, I've not, I've not been able to um, find enough information on it. If you, if you, if there's anything out there that you can, yeah, point just go towards. to xpt xpt.com. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've um, I've read about some of the stuff that he's uh, he's done because he has quite a lot of celebrities go down there and do that style, same style workout as well, doesn't he? I think. Yeah, yeah. There's a. T- I mean, he's he's got a number of celebrities, uh, special. You know, he's got special operations folks, military mm. folk um world-class athletes all of them they i mean people have caught on to it um you know a lot of people have uh, it's a very effective tool that i use with many different mm. client personal clients of mine mm. yeah and and again as i as i get older and i think as a lot of the people i work with get older it becomes more of a focus to keep ourselves in good shape and, and make sure our mm-hmm. body's still working effectively and it is to build the engine and all of these methods that you talk about require a, a, a change of mindset. For some people, it's a it's a small pivot. For others, it's a one eighty. But um, mm-hmm. if you you know, my own focus is if I want to keep doing the gravel bike riding and you know, ocean open water swimming and you know, running until I'm seventy, I've got to look. I've got to take care of the body work. I feel like I'm a classic car where the uh, the panels are falling off and the suspension's creaking. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, my twenties and early thirties, I, I I wanted to be the Ferrari, but now I'm. I definitely I like the classic car much better. Uh, you know, even though I mean, I still you know I, I push I push pretty hard. I mean, I still do some very intense stuff, uh, mm-hmm. and I love it. But I literally, uh, you know, I I I, I crave it, but. I'm also not, it's not like every single day I'm hitting these very high things. It's, mm-hmm. it's very well thought out, felt out, uh, and understood through many different metrics and, uh, strategies of, you know, deploying a number of the things I've kind of discussed here, including I'm in the water probably three or four days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Swimming. I love swimming. It's my favorite. I, I I have the same experience as you though. Come out at the front of the field and then get yeah. passed, by, passed by everybody, and it makes you feel like you're rubbish on a bike or on the run, and you're not. Yeah, well, uh, that, well, yeah, that's not happening anymore. But <laughs> I've cleaned up that bike, and, and I've uh, the run. I'm 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 coming back towards. Um, you know, like mm. you know, at, at any rate, I'm pretty content with where I'm at right now. Let's before we go on to the um the shift work and everything you and your current projects, let's talk about that other book unplugged because I like the concept yeah. there of, of being mindful about wearables, being mindful about gadgets and the information they're giving you. And um I you know, I've not read that book, so I'm gonna let you talk about it rather than me get things wrong. But um tell me a bit about your motivation for writing that and, and what you hope to achieve by writing that, if you can. Yeah. Um so the mo- motivation behind that book came from a relationship that I have with Dr. Andy Galpin, mm-hmm. um, who's a good friend and a colleague uh, that I've done work with for probably, I don't know, seven or eight, seven or eight years at this point. Um, and um, he, he and I co-authored this thing uh, because he, he, he is a professor and researcher um, would look at a lot of the scientific approach of things and using technologies there. And I was doing it from the practical or clinician standpoint. Right. And 
I actually introduced Andy to the breathing thing um, where he was kind of calling BS on it uh, at first. And so I introduced him to a few things uh, and quickly he saw the changes and differences and changed his mind. So we started looking at these things. That said, um, you know, most people are using technologies in ways that they that that are probably doing more damage than they are doing any good uh, because they're using them in a way that's guiding them in a way that is, uh, <laughs> I would say, leading them to more problems than 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 happiness. Um, and that's largely what we're seeing in the world today. I mean, honest, the, 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 the reality of our lifestyle currently is it doesn't work. Um, we're, we are a failed concept of comfort. Um, and you know, that doesn't mean there aren't people who aren't successful, uh, or having some success with that, but by and large, our modern lifestyles have failed and it's showing up as disease. And that disease is uh, being buffered through the pharmaceutical and medical world in a way that is just kind of bootstrapping us to hold on for the inevitable, right? Uh Um, Granted, the crowds that you and I are probably dealing with and who's listening to that don't fit into a lot of this. However, I'm sure plenty of the crowd... will relate to the fact that they are technologically addicted to certain things that are meaningless if they were to really break down why they're using these things. Like, does your power output actually really matter? No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, your, your, your race time doesn't actually matter. Um, it, it, but you think it does. Um, you having fun matters more than your race time. And the fact that we've connected those two is a problem. Um, yeah. I, I had to go on mute there. Sorry, because I was laughing yeah. so much. Um, because that that whole thing there about um, just reminded me when you, you, you've been familiar with this, being in the pool and having to interrupt your reps because some folk guys there fiddling around to get his watch started because it's it's measuring the reps he's doing which are already written on the board anyway it's like if you want to know what you've done today just take a photograph of the session and you don't need your watch to tell you um but also that thing about is your race time importance i i have used a phrase in the past where i say to folks you know what's more important is the time you had the experience rather than the time you did because that's actually what you'll remember in the long run is the time you had out with your mates, enjoying the crowd, yeah. the venue, you know, like we both talked about with them um, in relation to Penticton Ironman. Yeah. I mean, look, I've, I've, I've worked with some pretty uh, high level folks, um, you know, world champions. And I understand that winning is an important part of that process and, and, and getting a certain contract and being paid mm-hmm. for what it is you're doing comes with big rewards for winning. Um, however, if winning is the primary goal, then you're going to find some big problems when that comes to an end. Uh-huh. And the you're, I think you're absolutely correct in that the experience is the most important part. Um, we are not, when you are glued to technology and time, you aren't in the experience, just to be clear. Your attention's gone. 
sleep sleep trackers are very common and popular now, aren't they? Um, I used a whoop for uh, quite a few years, and uh, you know the other mm-hmm. common uh, one is is um, the Aura Ring. But, yep. but I have to say, I, I experienced a little bit of this myself, and I know from other folks that have got them that you know it's supposed to be giving you an insight into your sleep and your sleep performance and actually i've I, what i have seen is that the behavioral changes from understanding some of that data are amazing but in the short term i see people getting orthosomnia because they're worried about what their sleep's going to tell them on whoop the next day so then they don't sleep very well because they're worried about the data um, and that's mm-hmm. counterproductive correct uh there isn't a person i have not worked with who doesn't use these technologies who it is not impacting more negatively than positively, mm. even though it's impacting both of those. So let's mm-hmm. be clear. There is there is a positive and there is a negative. However, mm. the negative is usually outweighing is all in my in my experience in my clinical work, it outweighs the positive because people are reactive to mm. what they see, which mm. tells me they're not present with what's really going on. They're not in the experience. They're yeah. actually glued to an outcome and thinking that 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 this should dictate how their life should function. Yeah. Mm. And it shouldn't. And that's why we wrote the book Unplugged is it was like, you know, most people are not taking with a grain of salt like looking at, you know, Alan Cousins, who you may or may not know. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, yep. you do. Okay. Yeah. Yep. A- Alan does a great job of explaining a lot of this stuff with mm-hmm. inside what he does on social media. Um, you know, um, and then there's a number of individuals who speak to the HRV world. Um, you know, Marco Antoni uh, mm-hmm. is, is one of them who, you know, is like you, you we shouldn't have these reactive mm. uh, plays towards an HRV score, right? Just because it's off one day doesn't mean mm. it's like yeah. or on one day doesn't mean, you know, you know, I, I need to make these drastic changes, right? Mm. It's no, what's happening over time and how are you able to look at that? And that's what people aren't able to do. And so me as a coach or a clinician is able to see this over time and be able to make calculated decisions on how we're altering training and what we're doing with training. Yeah. I've had, I've had Alan on the show. I've also had Dan Plews, um, who's a friend mm. of mine who's done a lot of the research. Um, also Paul Larson, who wrote the high intensity interval um, training book. And Paul's yeah. got this um, new AI um, training app that he uses called Athletica. And we talked about what, what metrics he's asking people to rec- um, record in order to track recovery. And HRV was on there, but surprisingly, given that I've had a few conversations with him and Dan about HRV, it wasn't high on the list. What was highest on the list was how fatigued do you feel today? How well did you sleep? How motivated do you feel for training? All subjective, but all of which have been shown through, you know, like some of the research the AIS have done, that they're actually bigger indicators to your ability to train um, and recover from that training. So, you know, and that's, and that's all down to feel, right? And understanding your body and being in the present and listening to what's going on. I've seen Olympians show up to the starting line at the Olympics who um, their metrics would have said you shouldn't be training today. And they went and won a gold medal. Mm. Well, Inigo so. San Milan talks about today Pogacar starting a Tour de France ride with, with really low HRV and winning the stage and feeling amazing. And the next day, 
showing that he's in the green for recovery and tanking. And he's like, to, yeah. to his coach, how, how does that all work? Yeah, correct. Correct. Uh, I ran, I ran a, um, an in, in-house analysis with a number of world-class athletes um, some time ago. And we were gathering metrics, HRV, heart rate, resting heart rate, all that stuff, uh, urine in the morning, um, mood, um, you know, it, just a number of different metrics, right? The telling thing for the athlete was mood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If their mood was, if they were in a, in a, in a 10 mood, nine or 10 mood, they were performing in practice that day or in training that day. Um, if their mood was crap under, under like six, it was a shit show. So we just started altering training <laughs> with mm. mood because it really was the key indicator, even though we were still gathering these metrics. Yeah. I've, I've spoken to a lot of coaches that, you know, they'll, they know their athletes that they, they watch them walk onto poolside or onto the athletics track. And you can tell the mood, by the way, somebody's walking, whether the head's dropped, whether they're talking animatedly whether they're engaged with what's going around or no they're just shuffling their feet and they've even started to mentally adjust that person's training before they've even spoken to them Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's fantastic work um you know i i really think ultimately um at this point you know you yes your training um your training program matters however when you're the when the container Meaning when your mind is in the right place, when you're not fixated over, you know, you're not uh, overthinking, you're not um, uh, caught up in the trauma of your past. Um, You've dealt with a lot of the stuff that we all have, you know, through growing up. There isn't anybody I've come across yet who doesn't, right? When you've come to reality with that and you've shed much of that and the container of your uh, vessel is operating in a way that is quite simply there to experience it all you have somebody who is functioning quite well and can absorb just about anything Hmm. Um, because they know in practice or in training when it's enough and they know that when they sleep and they wake up, right? Like, and and let's just be clear, like, and you know, some of the questions that you sent over, there was some stuff about, you know, like, is there enough recovery for things like intensity and stuff? And yeah, it's called sleep, and sleep's not a hack. Sleep is a part of our biology. Uh-huh. And if you're not actually sleeping, if you're not getting the appropriate amount, most of the clients that I work with just don't get that amount. Like I, most of these guys that I'm, and it's usually the guys that I'm working with are when they're getting less than seven hours, mm-hmm. they don't get to do the things that we want to do. They want to look a certain way and do certain things. They don't get to do that because they didn't deploy the strategy for getting to that. And so that's where the hard learning curve comes in. If you want this sexy game, you think like, like the sexy training that you see or hear about or read about, Hmm. you're going to have to be doing this. 
Mm-hmm. This is going to have to be blockaded. So your boundaries are going to need to be set. And most people just don't value their time enough. So that's uh, what uh, I've come across. No, I, I totally agree. I, I, you know, I work as a sleep coach and you know, it's most, it's one thing I just do with the athletes that I, um, that I, uh, I coach, but I've done the precision nutrition stuff with John Berardi and yep. on the deep health and recovery. And I, I love all that stuff, but it's, you know, sleep seems to be my experience of those athletes is the same as what you've described. Most people just aren't getting enough sleep and, um, that the fixes are very simple, but they are habits that need changing in order to be able to access that good sleep, really. And it's just modern lifestyle, poor habits, isn't it, that are dragging them away from that sleep as much as anything. Yeah, I mean, what I've found in my work, um, it, because, I mean, to be honest, it's like, look, we I deal with, this is the foundation. Like, the, the mind is the foundation of it all. And so we kind of look, I look at the root, you know, I mean, look, I, I've got athletes that are uh, MMA athletes. I've got professional surfers, soccer, football player, footballers. Um, you know, it goes on and on. And I can tell you right now that s- the sleep fix happens in my experience, the sleep fix happens once I can get them to understand that the way they're spending their time, where their attention is at has nothing to do with what it is they think they value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And when we get them in alignment with their values and their attention, the sleep thing happens naturally because they start to see, oh, I'm getting tired at this certain point and yet I'm pushing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your body, you're, you're getting tired and you pushing through that is this modernistic lifestyle that we've all taken on that there, there's more to do. And that one common thing that I've understood with just about everybody I come in contact with there, it it is rare. And I mean, I can count on one hand with the amount of people I've come across met or are friends of mine that don't value their time. They just don't value their time. And so they're doing more than they're actually capable of really doing well. Uh And so they're doing a whole bunch of different stuff, even if it's one job they have, but they're doing all the stuff around that job, right? So they're not mm-hmm. really doing the actual job mm-hmm. really, truly effectively, whether that's being a professional athlete or whether that's having a job as a podcaster or whatever else I, I'm doing. I've got all this stuff that I'm doing and I found this out the hard way myself because I love to be physical. Like I said, I do in excess of probably three hours a day of some sort of training, which involves some sort of level of walking or beach cruiser level mm-hmm. pace. But then there's like the skill, the strength, the, you know, I'm in the water or what else I'm doing. Then I've got my actual job. And I've found that anything really over three or four hours of me being focused on my job a day is an absolute nightmare. What What are your triggers, Brian? When you, you know, cause you're, you, you, as you say, you've got a lot going on. You do, which seems like it's a habit in your life that you're know, like brushing your teeth, that daily activity. Mm-hmm. So what, what things do you notice that start to unravel? That means, you know, I've got to tell you, I've got to cut back a little bit. Oh, nervous energy. My, well, first my sleep starts to get affected, mm-hmm. right? So nervous energy, I start to get addicted to the rush of doing a bunch of different stuff and taking on new opportunities, 
left and right. Excitement is a drug, just to be clear. And and most people are chasing excitement. They're not actually chasing a a high quality life. Mm. Um, And that is where we start to look at people with values and attention. And most people's attention is on a bunch of different shit, which is Mm -hmm. why they're also on social media where they fool themselves that they have that under control. No, you don't. Not if you're on social media. You do not have anything under control. That is by design to take you out of control and draw your attention off of what's important, which is your time. I'll play devil's advocate now then, because you do a lot of stuff yeah. on social media. I don't do anything. Oh, you have somebody do it. You have people. <laughs> Excellent. Yep. Are you, have you read Essentialism? Uh, no. That that's a really good book. It was it was pointed towards me by a, a guy that I know was running a, a company a few years ago, a nutrition company, and he said, "This is how I see your life, Simon. It's like a small circle with lots of arrows, and if it was a big circle with one huge strong arrow going off it, you might find that what you do, you do better, and actually you 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 know you enjoy your life more." And so he gave yeah. me this book, and I read it, and it's a fantastic book, Essentialism. I'd thoroughly recommend it if you've mm-hmm. not read it yet. No, I haven't. Uh, but I mean, it's in alignment with just about everything. I mean, I've look, I, I've you know read the Comfort Crisis. Um, you know, the um, uh, what was it? Stolen Focus by uh, Harari, mm-hmm. um, which is all in alignment with things I discovered through my own self reflection, mm. right? So through self-reflection, I wound up understanding where my attention was being blotted. And let's be clear, I fight for that every single day. It's called, you know, I hate this term. It's called boundaries. Um, And it's actually giving a shit about yourself Mm. versus thinking you care about a bunch of different things and wanting to help a bunch of different people at the own sacrifice of yourself and your own time. Um, You know, are you charging enough for your time? with what you do, because if you're taking on like more people than you can actually work with effectively, you don't. Right. And I learned a lot of this through this self-reflective process, Mm then started reading about a bunch of this, a lot of this stuff with, you know, data research, et cetera, and people writing books on this, these very subjects. And hell, I mean, I did that book unplugged because of what I was seeing with the people I was actually working with and Mm -hmm. not being able to use the technologies effectively, like people wanting VO2 max tests. And I was like, for what, Mm -hmm. what are you going to do this for? To, mm-hmm. to what see your how big you see where your ego can take you like <laughs> um and it, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with a vo2 max test right like i do that with a lot of clients but mm-hmm. we do it to understand a lot of variable things right um at any rate i i'm i'm digressing a little bit but the fact is is i really think that at the, at the core of this is really understanding your values, what those real top five values really are, at least the top five, and understanding where your attention is at. And just knowing that when your attention is dispersed in many different things, you, you're not doing any one thing well. You're just doing a bunch of different crap. It's like driving a car and thinking you can text message. While mm-hmm. you have the skills to drive a car now, and your text messaging, which everybody's doing at this point, right? And people are 
messaging because they can get away. They they think they're so skilled at driving. They're actually not really driving anymore. They're just depending on the motor control aspects of being mm. involved in that when their attention mm. is dispersed. Mm. Um, I know you've got a hard stop soon, Brian. So I yeah. just wanted to talk about your HHP Foundation, this, this yeah. shift project, which yeah. um, is, is obviously a culmination of all the stuff that you've been doing over the years. And um, we've talked about some of it. So can you give us a um, a flavor for those two, please, for folks who haven't haven't heard of those? Yeah, so sh- shift is simply what we what power speed endurance was my business. We've just moved that over because of the work with what we were seeing with um, a lot of the bre- the breathing and the breath control that we started implementing um, probably mm-hmm. ten or twelve years ago at this point. <clears throat> um, and that work really l- laid a foundation for what I we were just talking about. Um, and that opened up doors for a lot of people, um, that entered my life, including, um, you know, I found myself on an Island pretty quickly when I started looking at how breathing was affecting high performers and understanding how we could change a lot of stuff going on with people. So I started, um, being contracted by, uh, you know, like I met Dr. Andy Galpin. I've done work at Cal State Fullerton. Um, I've done work at, at San Francisco State University. I've been uh, contracted by Stanford Medical. Um, you know, I've I've worked inside research a, a, with a lot of this stuff and understanding the health consequences of our modern lifestyle on how it is affecting respiration, breathing mm. as a whole. That introduced me to uh, my partner at the foundation now, which is the Health and Human Performance Foundation, which is Tanya ben- Dr. Tanya Bentley, who had a, a lot of interest in breathing as it related to understanding it with diseased populations. Mm. So I come at it from the performance side. She kind of looks at it from the disease side. Um, I'm interested in both. She's interested in both. However, she uh, we're, we're really looking at we've really uh, uncovered a lot with inside how breathing affects health. So, um, and we've really exposed that. So reading some of the stuff around, around what you've done um, and mm-hmm. some of the things you've talked about um, today, mm-hmm. if we could all learn to breathe properly with some of the very simple methods you talk about and a, just a little bit of consistent application, do you think that that could start to, unpick some of the public health problems we have in the western world um can can regular breathing practice for instance reduce the need for a lot of people to have prescription meds um could doctors be prescribing regular breathing practice and attendance at a a clinic or a class that you might be doing rather than prescribing this drug or is the or is the pull of big pharma too powerful for them to sort of overcome that um i mean i think big pharma in and of itself has some interest in some of this. Um, however, um, you know, they're a business, so they're going to figure out what's Mm -hmm. the easiest way to make a dollar, right. Or, you know, a pound. And that's always going to be there. If breathing can fit into that, they will figure it out. They'll learn to deploy it. Um, I don't know. I'm just going to play a bit of the kind of pessimistic role here 
um, in terms of people. Um, I don't know that people actually want to do the work in terms of changing our outcomes, meaning we are addicted to comfort and we've sold our beauty for comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will continue to do that. Um, you know, I, I, I witness this almost on a daily basis, not only with personal clients, but with what we actually offer on shift, uh, for membership. Uh, like I said, I've seen a lot of athletes in a lot of times we get stuck in our ways of doing things and how comfortable we are and how we do them. And so making changes towards things means I've got to do things. There's always going to be a group of people that are probably listening to this podcast and fit in this type of a world that are willing to make those changes and go after those. However, the vast majority of the populace of the world is never going to do that. Mm. They're never going to do it. We're always going, and 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 we, I think we are really confusing ourselves with thinking we're going to save everybody. There's nobody to be saved. People are just stuck in comfort and don't want, they want the easy way out. And they think that they don't have to work at that. And everything requires hard work for real quality change that allows us to express our biology in a way mm. that leaves us to be a very healthy organism, multi-organism. There's a, right? triath- there's a triathlete called Sammy Inkinen, who's, I think he's up in Seattle. He's doing a lot of stuff around tr- trying to get folks away from type 2 diabetes medication. I know he's pumping a lot of money into it and trying to direct them towards, you know, non-medical interventions or non-pharmaceutical interventions. I don't know how successful that's going to be based on what you've just said about what people want in the easiest option. Um, but he's trying. You'll, you'll get a few. You'll get. You'll get a few people. Like there's no no. Like I I wouldn't say it's meaningless work. I'd say he's getting some people to make changes. But you've got mm. so many people mm. who just are never going to do that. I mean, you've got this obese population of people that exists in the UK and the US that like they literally aren't going to change their habits. They there is no way they're going to really the vast majority of them ever want to change their habits. Because they're too, they 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 feel too comfortable in those habits. Yeah, yeah. I, my my father was like that. He was on type two diabetes medication. He kept telling me his blood sugar scores were great, and he was eating, you know, his house like a chocolate factory. And it was because the nurse kept changing yeah. his medication to keep his blood sugar scores down. But he was yeah. happy with that. You know, it's it was yeah. difficult to observe from the outside, but um, it it gives yeah, me scary. gives me motivation not to fall into that trap, Brian. Uh, I know you've got to go. I uh, I had a couple of listeners that wrote some questions. Um, have you got time to answer them quickly? Yeah, sure. Okay. The first one was, um, are you familiar with the Norwegian method that's getting so much yep. success in triathlon at the moment? Um, where do you, where do you feel like your method and approach, you know, sort of almost like the CFE approach that we've talked about earlier could replace that and be, and be a good fit for pro triathletes or whether the Norwegian method is appropriate or are they just working because they've got the right coaches, the right people? That's well, based on what I understand, based on what I've uh, been able to uncover and understand about what they're doing is it's a very calculated uh, way of um, creating a new, you know, this new breed of endurance athlete, right? But they're, you know, they're you they're utilizing a number of different modalities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, altitude being one of those things, right? Um, and 
you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting concept. Uh, you know, I mean, we didn't even talk about it, but I've been screwing around with altitude and low oxygen training for 20 something years and implementing it into strategies mm. that I've been, that I've had with almost every athlete. Um, and in fact, most of the professional athletes I work with know that because they get introduced to these things. Um, and there's a way and, and there's ways to go about it. Um, and I'm just sticking to the altitude thing because yeah, it's a, it, it's something that affects people, but so does heat. Like when you uh, look yeah. at, you, yeah. uh, when you look, when you look at high level, uh, endurance athletes, those who manage heat best do best. Um, and I've been screwing around with heat for 20 plus years. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I got out of my sauna this morning. I was in it for 45 minutes on a bike. Mm. Like, yeah, well, that's just, a question I've that's a question I've asked a lot of people like Dan Plews and Paul Larson is could you could you substitute altitude training for heat training given the the sort of um, hormonal changes that it you brings can't about? Substitute you can't substitute. However, you can come damn close. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> and that's, and uh, heat has some better positives over the altitude, and the altitude has better positives. I feel like there's another podcast we need to come back to to talk about that in more depth. Um, before you go. One final question, which would be good to sign off on, is what keeps you motivated to keep improving and driving on? Um, I, I mean, I, I would say I'm just curious by nature. I love learning and seeing how adaptation happens. I love seeing what my potential is. And even at 50 years old, like the way I feel when I wake up in the morning, man, I, I, I almost feel like I feel better than I did when I was in my 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. you know? and even though I was pushing hard and, and kicking ass and I don't know why that thumb keeps popping up, but at any rate, you know, it like, I love feeling great and I'm not trying to change that. I'm just looking to see where I can take that. I, I play every day. I have a wonderful woman who is a part of my life that like I play with almost on a daily basis as well. Like we screw around in the ocean. We screw around like, just screwing around with play. Right. And, and that's something we didn't even touch on, but that is part of my day is playing. Like I have that aspect of being a kid still with me. Mm -hmm. Um, That was that aspect of skateboarding and surfing and being in the ocean and growing up at the ocean and still living by the ocean that I'm probably going to die with. And I'm proud that I'm going to die with that because I feel good and I, I I chase that. And that's what I love doing. But I love hearing about new things, seeing new things mm. and testing those things and seeing what they do. Hence why heat and altitude are, have been with me as long as this other stuff we were talking about. Because mm. I saw a long time ago the changes that were happening with that. And I was like, oh, this is this is really cool. Mm. Yeah, I, I, we did some heat training, getting ready for Marathon de Sable, but I noticed it had some other knock-on positives for other things I was doing as well. So uh, that, that oh, yeah. was what piqued my interest. Yeah, so And I love well, that thing about having I mean, fun. Um, look, man, 80% of energy is lost to heat, basically. Hmm. 80% of energy. Think about that. Brian McKenzie, that, it's been it's yeah. been an education. I knew it would be. So thank you very much for um, uh, helping me uh, – just get get that outcome from today for me and I hope for the listeners. I, I really appreciate your insight and your knowledge and your sharing. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for having me, Simon. I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you again to Brian for being my guest on the show this week. 
I really enjoyed that part at the end of the conversation where we talked about aligning your lifestyle with your values. For me, that's what being a high-performance human is all about. If you don't know about them already, please can you check out my new bite-sized podcast episodes which are released every Saturday. These are around 10 minutes in length and I share my insights on one very specific topic. And so far, we've looked at the basic principles of day-to-day eating, the benefits of sleep on your mental health, zone two training, and much more is coming in the future. So please check those out. And if you like them, please feel free to share them with your friends. And to make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, and then click the subscribe button. And if you've got some time while you're there, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, this is the time of year when you're probably turning your mind to events for 2024. And if you have got events to prepare for, then you might be interested in my SWAT Inner Circle. We've got almost 100 like-minded athletes preparing for triathlons, marathons, cycle sportives, and much more. And as well as training plans and coaching guidance, the real killer is this. It costs just £30 a month for all of that, which... Even if I say so myself, I think it's a really, really good value. So please give it a a check out. You can find a link in the show notes below. And if you've got any questions, feel free to email me at simon at thetriathloncoach.com. And while you're checking out the show notes, please have a little gander at all of the other links in there to the things that we've mentioned today. And there's some really good uh, things in there that I'd point you towards, especially those workouts with Laird Hamilton, the... uh, probably the world's best ever surfer so have a look at that for now that's all so thank you for being here next week i'll have another great guest and i hope you'll be able to join me